0: Guilty things is the God who is your advocate. He sees and He knows. He's the Judge that has proclaimed each and every one of us in Christ Jesus not guilty. Amen. Bless His holy name. So as we come to this passage. In the book of Acts this morning, we come to the trial of Paul. And we recognize there, it seems like there's no one in his defense, but Paul has the same advocate that each and every one of us has. He has the Lord God. We ask you to turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 24, verses 1 through 22. That's the book of Acts, chapter 24, verses 1 through 21. Thank you, Lord. And if you found the sacred scripture, would you please say, Thank you, Lord, Thank you, Lord for cleansing me of my guilty stain. And would you please stand for the reading of God in Aaron. Infallible word. Acts 24, 1 through 21. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had summoned Tertullus began to accuse him saying since through you we have enjoyed much peace and since by your foresight most excellent Felix reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude but to detain you no further I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized it. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years, You have been a judge over this nation. I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believe in everything laid down by the law and written by the prophets, having hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that they will be that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple, without a crowd or torment. But some Jews major they ought to be here before you and make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before them in the council. Only then this one thing, that I cried out standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Amen. May the Lord have a blessing to the reading and hearing, but most importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. You may be seated. This particular chapter is the beginning of Paul's main trial, which will last really for the next three chapters. And this morning, as we have entitled this time together, When God is Your Advocate, we're going to hear the opening and closing arguments from the prosecution as well as the defense the prosecutors the Jewish leadership and the defense that is represented physically by Paul but spiritually by God who is his advocate but pastor what is an advocate an advocate is a person who speaks or writes in support and in defense of a person or a cause. It is a person that pleads on the behalf of another, a person who serves as an intercessor and sometimes serves as a lawyer in a courtroom. But, Pastor, what does it mean? When the Bible promises us that Jesus is our advocate, what happens when God himself is your advocate? As mentioned before, an advocate is a person who comes to our aid, who pleads our case before a judge. Advocates offer support. Advocates offer strength advocates offer counsel advocates intercede for us when it's necessary the bible says that jesus is an advocate for those who place their trust in him first john 2 1 my little children i am writing these things to you so that you may not sin but if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the father Jesus Christ the righteous the bible teaches that as as well as Jesus the holy spirit is our advocate just look at John 14 16 and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever this English word advocate is translated from the Greek Clayton, and it means a helper, an advisor, a counselor. In a human court system, an advocate speaks for the rights of his or her client. We call them lawyers, and they have studied the complexities of the law, and they can navigate through those complicated statutes with accuracy and precision. That is the picture that John came for us when he refers to Jesus Christ as our advocate. God's righteous law was violated and he's pronounced each and every one of us guilty. We have rejected his standards. We have rejected his rules and we continue to sin and we continue not to come into the knowledge of truth. But because the word of God teaches us this in Romans 1, 21, 23, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. So before we knew Jesus Christ, our only just punishment for such wickedness would be an eternity in hell. But Jesus, as our advocate, between, He stands between our repentant hearts and his righteous law. This only happens if the blood of Christ has been applied through to our lives, through our faith in Christ Jesus. This only happens if we have confessed with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God is risen from the dead. And from that moment, on. Christ is our advocate and he pleads our case with the righteous judge which is God the Father. Can you imagine how that conversation might go? Father God I know that these before you have sinned. they have violated all of our commandments. They are guilty as charged. However Father You have said that my sacrifice is sufficient payment for the debt that they owe you. My righteousness has been applied to their account because they have trusted me for their salvation. Without it, they would be bankrupt. I have paid the price, and now we can pronounce them not guilty because there's no debt for them to repay. Romans 8 and 1 says it this way, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus jesus is our advocate my friends when god first accepts us into his family we become his children and then he remains our advocate forever first john 1 9 says when we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive our sins And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Of course, as his followers, followers, we still sin. But when we do, we are commanded to confess that sin to God. Confession is an agreement with God about how bad sin is. We stand guilty before him with no argument and no justification of our own. Our advocate steps before the judge and together they agree that because we are in Christ, no further punishment is necessary. Another great aspect of the compassion of Christ is seen in how he experienced and lived in this world. Christ has been tempted, rejected, betrayed, yes. lied on, yes. overlooked, misunderstood, and abused. So Christ doesn't just understand what you and I have gone through theoretically. He understands it because he's experiencing it. Jesus knows our sorrows. He lived in a way, yet without succumbing to the evils that befall you and I, he successfully refused to give in the temptation so that he could be our high priest and perfectly fulfill God's law. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. It is Jesus our advocate that pleads our case from his personal experience. He has satisfied all the demands of justice his advocacy is from a position of strength and righteousness god has accepted the propitiation of his son on behind, on behalf of us because of divine agreement established before the world began christ has been given all authority over every tribe every people every language every nation all who dwell on the earth our position now is forgiven in the righteousness of Christ. It is secure because it is Christ who has purchased that position for us. Romans 8 and 3 says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sin. My brothers and sisters, there is nothing to fear in this courtroom called the world, because God is our advocate. Let us pray, dear Heavenly Father. We just love and praise you. We thank you for cleansing all our guilty stains, sending your Son the propitiation for our sinful debts and that He's paid them all in full. So, Lord. Let us gain encouragement as we peek into the courtroom as Paul is being persecuted and prosecuted by enemies of the faith. Let us recognize that one day we will live in that courtroom called this world, persecuted and prosecuted because of what we believe. But let us all recognize that we have A defense counsel that is more than able, more than competent and more than capable to deliver us it is in the precious name of your son and our Savior that we ask it all and all God's children say "Amen." Amen. amen let's jump right in here let us recognize that when God is your advocate I don't care if they hire a special prosecutor or not. No man is allowed to prosecute you. Look at verse 1 here. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman. Now here's the special prosecutor, one Tertullus. He laid before the governor their case against Paul. Man, this is just unbelievable. We're we're into the 24th chapter of Acts. We've never heard of Tertullus. He comes out of nowhere. He's a hired hand. He's a hired assassin that's brought on the scene to make this case go through. We recognize that Paul has been guarded for five days in Herod's Praetorium. He's under constraint but he's under comfortable conditions before the high priest. Ananias went down to Caesarea. He brought the elders and he brought the special prosecutor. Paul's uh, accusers here are so anxious to expedite the proceedings. They thought that they would go out and hire the best legal assistance available to them. So they brought that lawyer and they allowed him to give their case before the governor. They've already indicted him. They served as their own grand jury, bringing charges against Paul. And this is now putting the formal process into motion. So let's look, and we see the opening arguments here. Paul Paul, Paul is called in. And Tertullus here presents his case before Felix, and I want you to listen to his words here. Since you, since through you, we enjoy much peace. Tertullus knows that the governorship of Felix has been characterized with much social and political uprising and disturbance. He's careful in this introduction because what he wants to do, he wants to link the charges he's bringing against Paul to be an example of what he knows Felix has worked against. Remember when we are back in 23, when they were confused about Paul in the first riot, they were concerned. Are you that Egyptian prophet that had that great rebellion? Now you see, it was Felix who brought that rebellion and snuffed it out. So he knows that Felix is a law and order judge and he could be expected to maintain the peace by punishing anyone that disturbed the public order of Jerusalem. He goes on. He says, since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, Reforms are being made for this nation. He's talking about the Jewish nation here. And he claims everywhere, in every place, everyone is accepting it with much gratitude. So he's affirming corporately the Jewish appreciation for the peace and the providence and the reforms that Felix has uh, conveyed widespread. Now he knows that Felix might get weary or might see this as flattery. He doesn't want to lose his attention. So he prepares himself to move to the substance of the charges. And he says in four, but to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. You know, when you go back and do a word study, on this word, kindness here. It means being reasonable, being fair, giving an honest hearing. Cortella speaking here on behalf of his client, the Jewish leadership, he starts to speak about Paul. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the jews throughout the world when he says all the jews throughout the world this is hyperbole he's talking about throughout the roman empire now you've got to remember under roman law rebellion and civil disobedience could be a capital crime and could land you in prison the prosecution here is trying to lay the groundwork that Paul's ministry was just an indication of how dangerous this sect called Christianity really was. And they said, hey, you need, Phyllis, you need to stop this dangerous plague, this disease, before it infects everyone. And you have breakouts like this all over the Roman Empire. You know, this charge here really echoes a charge that was really made against Christ back in Luke 23 and 2. You remember when he said this, and they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself, Christ, is king. Many people don't recognize but In the Roman Empire, Christians were called atheists because they would never say that Caesar was Lord. They would say Christ is Lord. So they were considered atheists because they didn't believe in God because Romans believed that Caesar was God. So they bring this charge. This is precisely why they bring this charge against this Jew. During the reign of Claudius in the early years of Nero, the accusers of Paul are putting themselves, really, think about this. The Jewish accusers of Paul are now jumping ship and putting themselves on the side of the Roman government. And they're framing Paul as a treasonous ringleader. This is a serious charge. That's why they said to him in 23.5b, it says, and he is the ring leader of the sect of Nazarenes. Remember, Jesus of Nazareth, those that followed him, they called them what? Nazarenes. The Jewish leadership began to assign the same kind of importance to this standard bearer as they once assigned to Christ, seeing them both as being treasonous. And recognizing that there were many of these Nazarenes that were following Christ and they needed to be put in their place as well the Lord goes on here and he says yes he's a ringleader of this group and then he goes to another specific charge which is an out and out line he even tried look at six he even tried to profane the temple But, we seized him. Now, if you start all the way back probably in 22, and you see how this story develops and it continues to change because everybody starts to edit the story. Right here the Lord has edited the story. He tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. He leaves out the riot altogether. Because really, such a righteous offense would have incurred a problem for Roman law as well, if proven. So then, he asserts that the temple was desecrated. And he wants to make this the main reason for Paul's captivity. I said before, he conveniently leaves out the riot in Jerusalem. And what prompted the commander to take Paul into custody, even though the claims have never been proven, and then he leaves a final state of charges for Felix. Now, this is really interesting. Look what he says in: hey, by examining him yourselves, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Mm-hmm. Here I think we see the hand of God the advocate moving because Tertullus invites the governor himself to cross-examine Peter about the matter, Brother rather Paul about the matter, and really from that standard, Paul's own testimony is the only thing they can convict him. So we see here that these accusations Lucas showed us all the way from back in chapter 23 that these accusations are absolutely untrue. So to tell us stops here. He gives his opening and closing statements. He delivers his whole case without one witness against Paul. But Paul, even though the prosecution is resting. Paul understands that when God is your advocate, no weapon formed against you can prosper. So now we go into the defense. The courtroom is quiet. There's great expectation of what the defense would say, how they would mount an argument against such a devastating attack. We see Paul as he takes the witness stand, the governor nods and tells him, allows him to speak. Paul took the stand and he mounts his defense all the time knowing that God is his advocate. Can you imagine that Paul is wondering what exactly is he going to say? But you think, he, you think he remembered what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 10 verses 9 through 20? When they deliver you over Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. You see, when God's your advocate, all you have to do is show up and God will show out. So Paul begins his defense in a similar way. He says these words look at verse 10b knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation I cheerfully make my defense Paul is acknowledging here that Felix is an experienced judge especially with matters relating to Jewish law and their disputes His goal here is to build a foundation upon common ground of fairness and like-mindedness He wants to make an effort to deal with this dispute before this magistrate, before keeping him with an open mind that he might listen to the defense that God is about to put forth. And he's going to intertwine all through his defense the very words of Tertullus to build his own case. He has five points, really not four. He has four points in his defense here. His first defense, he wanted Phyllis to know. Number one, I am not a warrior. I am a worshiper. And if you think about it, this claim colors his entire defense. He is asserting his piety. The reason I went to Jerusalem in the first place was to do what? To worship Look at verse 11. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. Paul is saying here, I am a devoted worshiper of God. And because of God's, my worship to God, I went there to express my homage and my honor, my respect and my reverence, my adoration and my adoration to the one that I'm serving. He's telling Felix, Felix i went there with reverence not to rebel i went there to honor my god not to harm the temple i went there to give sincere praise and not engage in sacrilege in their temple then he gives them a second line of defense those that are railing against me they're not reliable he's telling felix that you should request the reliability of these accusers. You should re- you should suspect the reliability of their claims. Look at 12. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. They have nothing on me, Felix. He knew that these synagogues that were in the area of Phyllis responsibility that he had done nothing wrong in them there may have been challenges in other towns but not in this particular place in Jerusalem that's why Paul can go on in 13 without any of contradiction he says these words neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me Paul here is emphatic as he enlists them to show any evidence against me any legitimate claim but he knew they could only tell lies so he had no reason to fear them or allow them to frustrate him or to allow them to make him frame a certain defense because of it paul trusted god And he knew that God would in the end expose them and deliver him from the charges that now seem so detrimental, and even to feel it could seem doubtful. You know, lies are always used to mislead people concerning the truth and lessen the impact of the truth, making it seem doubtful. Augustine once said, when our regard for truth has been broken down, or even slightly weakened, all things will remain doubtful. You know, when you really look at it, when you really think about it, a lie has no legs, because a lie requires other lies to support it. Tell one lie, you're forced to tell another to back it up. And stretching the truth won't make it last any longer. Those who think it's permissible to tell white lies Soon grow colorblind as their lives cloud their vision like a kaleidoscope. There was a third defense that Paul had here. And his defense is the confession of his belief. We see here when Paul gives his confession, he shows the marvelous manifestation of the mitigated majesty that God has brought into his life. When you think about it, this is a startling turn of events. Right in the midst of his defense, right in the midst of his emphatic denial, right in the midst of deliverance, he confesses. But don't worry. he's not confessing to a crime. He, he's confessing to the cause. Felylix wants to understand what is it that's behind his behavior that's driving. Him. Because really it's his behavior which has brought him before this judicial body and his behavior was driven by his belief in worship and love. Look what he says in Acts 14, 16. But this, I confess to you that according to the way, remember the way, is what they call. Before they call them Christians. They call them the way. Because Jesus is what? The way to truth and the life. John 14 and 6. Right? But I confess to you. That according to the way. Which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. Believing everything laid down by the law. Written in the prophets. Having hope in God. Which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection both of the just and the unjust remember he had Pharisees and Sadducees here Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection but the Pharisees did so he knew there were people that who would believe with him so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man Paul is clearly saying here I worship the God of our fathers, the God of our ancestors, the one and true living God. I worship God through my obedience. I worship God in everything that's been laid down by the law, written by the prophet. I worship God and he's my only hope. He's a father of all. He's the one who's just and the justifier. And by the way, I worship God as these same men here do also. I worship him in the hope and the knowledge that there will be a resurrection one day of those who were just yes. and those who are unjust. Yes. Paul is trying to show them that he was a faithful Christian that he accepted the law of the prophets and sharing in the resurrected hope that comes through Christ, the Messiah. Paul wants to show there's a difference here because he is a follower of the way, which some of these Jews call a sect, And that he believes and serves the God of the Old Testament according to the way of Jesus and his followers. So really he's telling them that I am a true Jew. He occasionally goes to evangelize and to engage others and to practice Jewish tradition in the synagogue, but all of his worshiping is done in a gospel ministry focus, designed to bring Jews and Gentiles together to acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Such a common hope and a common desire to serve God was still somewhat uncommon, but his worship of the one true and living God should never cast him as a destroyer of Judaism. It yes. should cast him as an angel of light. His attitude and his behavior identify him as righteous. His life is shaped by the totality of God's revelation in scripture. And he addresses the governor to clearly show that he has a genuine relationship with God. That's why he can say these words at the end of the passage without fear of contradiction. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience, both before God and man. Then he gives this fourth level of things, and it really goes back to his piety. He wants them to know that I went up to Jerusalem to worship, but I also went up there to serve. Look at Acts twenty four seventeen. Now for several years I came to bring arms to my nation and present offerings. His most recent visit was intended to bring offerings to the poor. And it's interesting that he says to my nation. So he wasn't just bringing offerings to poor Christians, but also to those Jews that he was trying to show them the way to Christ. Paul is painting here an accurate portrait of being punished for an act of mercy. Look at 24 18a. While I was doing this, they found me, while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple. Remember the only reason he was purified and he went through that process was to show the Jews that said that he was teaching against Jewish practices that he could win more to Christ he said they found me purified in the temple I've already gone through the process if I was purified in the temple why in the heck would I profane the temple Amen. <laughs> and they found me without crowd or toll there was no crowd with me I was involved with no disturbance. So he's denying the charge of being a deliberate ringleader, a troublemaker. He's telling them that they didn't have a leg to stand on. And if they did, these Jews from Asia, then they should be here mounting their own prosecution. Look at Acts 24, 18 through 19. But some Jews from Asia, that ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. He understood Roman law and Roman law was very strong against accusers who failed to show proof or abandon their charge. In fact, the failure alone of these witnesses not to appear before the governor's court suggests that their charges could not be sustained. And that's why they didn't show up. So Paul's making a plea right now to end this case. He goes on in 20 and 22. Or let these men themselves, these are the ones who showed up, said what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. He's making a clear charge that the only reason I'm here, it has nothing to do with criminal charges, it has to do with theological disagreement. And he's saying, basically, if you have something on me, bring it or just let a brother know. All the false charges were based on not breaking laws, were based on his belief about the resurrection. Paul now points Felix to the main point. This is the main point of his defense. I was there to worship God based on my belief, which he clearly teaches that there will be a resurrection of the dead for the just and the unjust. You see, in just one master stroke here, Paul has turned the tables on them. He has made his accusers witnesses on his behalf by showing that they only spoke of theological matters and not criminal matters. Mm -hmm. So he should not be before feeling. Mm -hmm. His defense ends quietly here. He ceases to speak, believing that the very weight of his defense will fill and balance the scales of judgment. All that was left for him was to silently sing the praise of God for his mercy, and to worship him once again. Case closed. All was finished but the shouting and singing praises to the Lord. When, I, when God is our advocate, we need to sing to him for the power of God comes down. Amen. Lewis Albert Banks tells of an elderly Christian man, a wonderful singer in the 30s, who learned that he had cancer of the throat and surgery was required. He's in the hospital room with his doctor, everything is ready for the operation. And the man said to the doctor, are you sure that I will never sing again? The surgeon found it difficult to answer his question. He took a breath and then he simply shook his head no. The patient then asked him, could he sit up for a moment? They helped him up and refocused the band. And he said that I have had many good times singing praises to the Lord. And now I tell you, now you tell me that I will never sing again. And I have one song that will be my last. My last song that will sing to God in gratitude and praise. And in the doctor's presence, he he softly sang, the words of Isaac was him. I'll praise my maker while I have breath. And when my voice is lost in death, praise shall employ my noble power. My days of praise shall never be passed while life and thought will last or my immortality endures. Paul's consistent Defense throughout this entire trial has been my deep and unabiding desire to worship the God that I serve because I believe that he will deliver us in the resurrection from the dead, those who are just and those who are unjust. I went to Jerusalem to worship. I worship in Jerusalem the God of my fathers I believed everything laid down in the law and written by the prophets I worship God and I took pains to have a clear conscience before God and man This is why God advocated and delivered him because of his worship I will worship of God is not just what we do on Sunday morning, but it is a total assessment of how we live. And if it's a total assessment on how we live, our worship will always be our star witness in any court case. Let us pray. Dear Father, we just love you and praise you. We thank you for your love. For your kid. We thank you that you're only a breath away. We thank you that we can trust you, that you are there to comfort us, not to give us strength to fortify us in times of trial, but you will never leave us nor forsake us. You are always our advocate. We love you and praise you, and we know there's always hope. Because you have have gone before us and worked out every trial in our lives. We can trust you because you are the perfect advocate. It is in the person's name of your son and our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children say Amen.